0: It's Wednesday, July 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The first night of the second round of Democratic debates focused highly on the divide between moderates and progressives. Are candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren too far to the left and promising too much to win against Donald Trump? The conversation spread into many of the top issues for Democrats, healthcare, immigration, and the economy. Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill, joins us to discuss Night One. Next, one of the country's biggest credit card issuers, Capital One, has been hit by a data breach which has compromised the personal information of over 100 million people. The thing that makes this breach different than others is that it was the work of one hacker named Paige Thompson, rather than an outside group with nation-state connections. Kate Fazzini, cybersecurity reporter at CNBC, joins us for how all this information was stolen. Finally, 3M has invented a new way to ship products that could do away with having to use cardboard boxes and tape on small deliveries. Katherine Schwab, reporter at Fast Company, joins us for this new product that could help small businesses. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: You know, I don't understand
2: why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about
1: what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for.
0: Joining us now is Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It was an interesting debate, night one, all over again. This is the second round. There was a lot riding on this night. A lot of people were hoping for a breakout moment. I didn't really think anybody had a breakout moment. It kind of turned into the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren show. But I think the top people ended up being Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg held his own again and then John Delaney he got a lot of time talking it was kind of a hit or miss but I think it elevated his profile a little bit like I said he he was involved in a lot of the conversation they were using him as a foil to ask questions about Bernie or Elizabeth a lot of time anybody that you think had a breakout moment in this Julia <laughs>
1: Now, I don't know if anyone had a breakout moment per se, but I think it was very much, uh, I guess, a really revealing, a very telling night about the deep ideological divide within the Democratic Party right now. So you had Sanders and Warren. And I think for a while there was kind of this, I guess, hunger or wanting in the media for Warren and Sanders to really right. go after each other to see if they're going to hit each other tonight. And they didn't. They actually seemed to join forces, you know, right after John Delaney and. In his opening statement just came out swinging against the two of them and I believe he actually mentioned them both by name in his opening statement so he very much John Delaney who has been struggling in the polls and in fundraising I mean his um, members of his campaign has, have reportedly told him to drop out of the race he is someone who's very much struggling so he very much came out in the open going after the progressive wing of the party and I think you saw Warren and Sanders very much hold their own and in a way kind of flip delaney's attacks on them in their favor i mean i think warren had one of the best moments of the night when she said, "quote I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and what we shouldn't fight for." And I think that was aimed directly at Delaney, who originally called um, progressive policies fairy tale policies. So very good on that one. We also saw Tim Ryan, another I wouldn't say he's completely centrist, if you will, but he kind of falls into that block. He's not really in the same group as Sanders or Warren he went after um bernie sanders on a number of issues including Medicare for all, and he essentially questioned whether Sanders' Medicare for all platform was comprehensive enough. And Sanders hit back and said, "I wrote the damn bill." <laughs> right. um, to quote him exactly. So a lot of you know, I would say Warren and Sanders had a lot of good zingers because of the attacks of coming from centrists on them. Obviously, you know, I got to mention this Oscar Marion Williamson was really the social media take of the Psychic night, um, you know, going after President. Trump's dark psychic force or what's coming out of his administration. I think um, Google searches in that uh, term spiked. So that was really fun to watch.
0: I I totally agree with all of that. She did have that funny moment there. I think uh, one of the interesting line of questioning was, is Sanders too extreme to beat Trump? And that kind of led itself into discussions about healthcare and immigration. And it really was this thing where it was pitting the progressives on one side and the more moderates on the other side. I mean, how do you attract independents and people in the middle? If Warren and Sanders are too far to the left, it's not going to happen. And and that's where guys like Delaney and Bullock stepped up and said, you know, this is not going to win us the election.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think we all expected that line of attack from candidates like Delaney or Bullock. You know, I thought Pete Buttigieg really held his own. And he also falls into that more moderate centrist category. But him and Beto O'Rourke, they very much did not jump into the fray at all. In fact, there were actually some points where I was like, wait, where's Pete Buttigieg? (laughs) Right two of them were kind of sitting back and watching that happen. And I don't think that was just, you know, a coincidence. I think they definitely were, um, there was definitely a calculated move behind that kind of a way to stay out of the fray. One thing that's also come into mind is, you know, a lot of these candidates, you know, they're going after Bernie and Warren on stage right now and they're centrist, but they're not the standard bearer for the centrist candidate. Joe Biden is the standard bearer for the centrist candidate.
0: One of the top issues for Democrats continues to be health care. And that was really a pretty intense discussion between everybody. There's this whole Medicare for all thing, a smaller scale public option. There's a bunch of variations in between. And I really think that was one of the issues where everybody is all over the board and not in agreement on how to handle this.
1: Yeah, everyone is all over the board on the issue and going back to the Obama administration. I think you saw, you know, a lot of candidates tonight trying to ra- especially those centrist candidates trying to reckon with the fact that okay medicare for all or you know more expanded medicare coverage may be popular within the party but so is obamacare and i think you know a lot of them including beto o'rourke were kind of using obamacare to essentially you know go after medicare for all saying people want to be able to keep their own plan um or keep their own medicare but we need to expand on it and you saw that Beto really talked about that with his Medicare for America plan. And we also saw Tim Ryan and Bernie Sanders go head to head on that. But, yeah, I think healthcare going forward, it's going to be interesting to see how this really unfolds over the debates, because I think, you know, this really it's a key it's a key point in the divide um, between the progressives and the centrists on the Democratic Party. And it kind of forces a lot of progressives to go against Obamacare, which, you know, I would say, A lot of Democrats say needs to be improved, but is overwhelmingly popular within the party.
0: It's going to be interesting to see what happens. We have night two coming up with 10 more candidates. Joe Biden is going to be at this one. Kamala Harris is going to be there as well. That's kind of this rematch everybody's looking forward to. So we'll see how that one develops also. Julia Manchester, campaign reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you.
3: Capital One uses Amazon Cloud for many different things, including running their web applications. So this was uh, a configuration flaw in the firewall of one of those web applications. So it was something that was controlled by Capital One. This is what she was able to exploit.
0: Joining us now is Kate Fazzini, cybersecurity reporter for CNBC and author of Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to be talking about the Capital One breach. There's a lot of interesting things at hand with this story. First off, it's unlike a lot of other major hacks because this involved a single person who was wreaking havoc on the data of a bunch of people. Capital One Financial had been hacked by Paige Thompson, and they disclosed that roughly 100 million people had some type of personal information stolen. This includes Social Security numbers, bank account numbers, Names, birth dates, credit scores, self-reported income. It's a lot of stuff that she got access to. What do we know about this, Kate?
3: First of all, it's, it's important to note, of course, that these are all allegations right now. And I say that especially because this all happened very quickly. The arrest was just within the last few days. The warrant was served this week. And we're still learning a, a lot about the single individual who uh, was, is said to have done this. Ms. Thompson is an engineer who formerly worked for Amazon. And she is said to have taken this information, posted it on GitHub, which is where a lot of engineers usually share code and things like that and not stolen personal information. Another user of GitHub saw it, flagged it to Capital One, and that's where we find ourselves today.
0: Now, Capital One has said that they don't think any of this information has been used for fraud. Obviously, it's hard to tell what the motivations are, but it's not like Ms. Thompson was trying to sell it. She was just putting it out there on the Internet.
3: It's actually a little bit unclear. Like, it just seems as if she was sort of celebrating the fact that she had stolen this stuff. But yes, you're correct in that Capital One and I believe the FBI now have have said that they don't believe this information was sold or picked up by anyone outside of this original alleged criminal who's been arrested.
0: Give us the background on how she actually did this, because you mentioned she posted on GitHub and an anonymous emailer sent it to Capital One, but she was all over social media, kind of boasting about this. She really led some of the breadcrumbs right to her.
3: That's right. Capital One uses Amazon Cloud for many different things, including running their web applications. So this was uh, a configuration flaw in the firewall of one of those web applications. So it was something that was controlled by Capital One, but within the Amazon cloud environment, uh, if that makes sense. So this is what she was able to exploit. I I have referred to her as an insider uh, in some cases because she did work for Amazon at one point and had some of that sort of inside knowledge into how the company works that could possibly have helped her do this.
0: I mean, I know that there's going to have to be some mental health experts that get involved in this. She was saying that she was trying to check herself into a mental institution and she's wearing basically a bomb vest over this because she's doxing all of this Capital One information. Like she basically knew what she was doing at some point, it seemed like.
3: Yeah, this is what is going to be a really interesting sort of soul-searching exercise for the big banks because, you know, they've invested a lot of resources and a lot of money into protecting themselves against the kinds of threats that have been commoditized, so nation-state threats, threats from criminal groups, which because there's a pattern to them, um, you can use a lot of AI, you can use a lot of technology tools to predict when those things are going to happen. What you can't predict is when somebody is going to, for lack of a better word, lose it or have some kind of mental health issue or just decide one day that they don't like what the company is doing and take personal action themselves. And that is much harder to predict. It's actually very hard to protect against.
0: What kind of you know new security measures do banks and, and other companies take against something like this? I think Capital One has said that this might cost them $150 million, which doesn't seem that much. How do they protect against singular actors?
3: That's actually the real question. There are a couple of different products that companies use to protect against actual insiders. So people working there who might be stealing information and emailing it to themselves at home, those kinds of activities, most big companies today are flagged. But when it comes to something like this, where somebody just has maybe a little bit of insider knowledge and the will to really go in and try to do something destructive. There's not a lot that can be done other than, of course, having configured that firewall correctly in the first place.
0: For all the charges that Thompson is facing, they said that if sentenced, she could face five years in prison and a fine of $250,000. The last thing I want to ask you, Kate, is what do people do to protect themselves against this? I know Capital One is going to make free credit monitoring available to everyone that was affected.
3: Yeah. So it's tough because after the Equifax breach, people lost a lot of trust in having their Credit monitored, and, and whether or not that would be an effective deterrent, it actually is the most effective way of making sure you're not a victim of identity theft because of one of these. So, freezing your credit, making sure nothing unusual is popping up on there, is it still really is the best way to prevent something from happening out of one of these.
0: And change your passwords regularly because I know that's passwords. a big one. Yeah. Kate Fazzini, Cybersecurity Reporter for CNBC and author of Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. Thank you very much for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much, Oscar.
2: You just feel it up, you just press down using pressure, and the material, the layer inside, sticks to itself and not your objects. And it creates this pretty strong seal. And so It's pretty cool because you can customize it to any size.
0: Joining us now is Katherine Schwab, design and tech reporter at Fast Company. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Hey, thanks for having me. I order a lot of things online, mostly from Amazon, and everybody knows how your packages come. They're always in a bunch of boxes. It could be like a small little thing in a huge box with those plastic air-filled things, you know, to try to take up the space so things don't get damaged. And it ends up being a lot of trash that you throw away. And one company, 3M, who's, you know, they make post-it notes and other products. They've developed a new type of packaging that could maybe help eliminate using boxes altogether. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have the same frustration just last week. My husband ordered a pair of cufflinks and it came in a box that I could barely carry. It was so big. It was ridiculous. So this kind of packaging that 3M's just developed, it's called Flex and Seal Shipping Roll. And it's really designed for small businesses who want to send you maybe a pair of cufflinks. The way it works, it's, it's these three layers of plastic that are all kind of bound together. And it comes in this big roll. You open it up and you kind of fold it over whatever you want to send someone, like a calzone. And you, you just seal it up. You just press down using pressure. And the material, the layer inside, sticks to itself and not your object. And it creates this pretty strong seal. And so it's pretty cool because you can customize it to any size. And then, of course, when you get a package using this, It's just uh, one smaller piece of packaging Yeah, Uh, that's also recyclable.
0: For people to try to imagine, let's say Amazon, just as an example, when you order things, you'll either get it in a big box or in some type of manila envelope type of thing. And it kind of resembles that maybe in the size and with like the bubble wrap uh, interior that it has. But the cool thing about this, as you said, I mean, you can really cut this to size since it comes on a roll and you really only need enough to seal around the product and and as you mentioned, this gray uh, inside only sticks to itself and not the product. The cool thing about this is, is that all it takes is 30 seconds before the seal becomes almost permanent. And that's kind of a, just an interesting feature that, that obviously has to go into the technology of what this packaging is.
2: Yeah, when I talked to 3M, I asked them how they've developed this adhesive that only sticks to itself, and they were very secretive about it. They wouldn't tell me. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but yeah, it's very much like those manila envelopes, but the fact that you can kind of size it down is really impressive. And, and one of the things that I was really interested in in terms of this story was the fact that, you know, if you think about all the boxes that fit into the back of the delivery truck, um, it's not just about sheer waste in terms of when you're, when you're opening up that box and having to throw it all the way after or recycle it. It's also the the number of packages that will fit in the back of a delivery truck. So if you have small items, they don't need to take up that much space, and that could make shipping a lot more efficient.
0: This is obviously a new product. It would take a little while before it could reach big players like Amazon and, and Walmart and Target even. But this could be huge for small businesses and even just individuals that regularly sell things on Etsy or eBay, things like that. I think 3M said that 60% of all items that are bought online or shipped are objects under three pounds, which is what this fits with. So small brands and small businesses, this could be really helpful to them in that way to eliminate all the manual labor and the other costs associated with boxes.
2: When I chatted with 3M, one of the things that they told me was that that's where they really started with this. They were looking for ways to improve the shipping process for small businesses. And they said that one of the interesting things is that when they asked small merchants who sell on platforms like Etsy what their problems were with shipping, people didn't really say anything because they were so used to the way shipping is now and didn't even think it could get better. And so it was only by watching and observing uh, these merchants did the 3M team realize, oh, this is a 10 plus step process for some people. This We have to be able to do better than this.
0: Yeah. And that's what makes this product so interesting. It really is sounds so simplistic. I mean, it's just a new little fold over package. It adheres to itself. No tape necessary. Super simple. But for these small businesses, if it's a 10 step process that they have to reduce into like three steps or so. That's a lot of help right there. These things are recyclable, but there is a catch with that, right?
2: Right now, it's recyclable, but similar to how you would recycle plastic bags, which is not something you can just throw in your recycling bin. So you would have to take this to a store um, that accepts plastic bags and and actively recycles them. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but that's something that might be a little bit too far out of most consumers' way. Yeah. Katherine Schwab,
0: design and tech reporter for Fast Company, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.